Well, let me just give a brief announcement and a brief explanation. I encourage everyone to check your phones and to have them on vibrate or to, I like to tell people you can empower yourself, just turn them off, you know, and, uh, but uh, just so it won't be a distraction. Then also just a brief word about why I'm standing here and not Pastor Chansky as originally the brochure went out. Uh, when we had our elders meeting to discuss uh, the conference, uh, Pastor Chansky said, I'd really like to preach that evangelistic message. I've never done that. Could I, we do, could I do that? And I said, it's fine. And, and so in order to give him a little bit of relief so he didn't have three plus that, plus the Lord's Day before, um, I raised my hand. And uh, so and they said, oh, a volunteer. And so here I am. This is uh, a message which I, I gave at a, a youth conference, a young people's conference on evangelism and really looking at Jesus Christ as our example. This is not a message on uh, all that needs to be known about evangelism. This is not a message on all the things that a church should or should not do when they evangelize. This is a message about what we can learn from Jesus Christ, looking at him as he as an example to us of a gospel preacher. Three books that I could recommend, a couple of which uh, Pastor Smith, uh, Jeff Smith from Coconut Creek had recommended, uh, I had as well. William Blakey, The Public Ministry of Christ, has been extremely helpful. I'll be quoting from him on a, a number of occasions here. James Stocker, the is difficult to find, uh, but you can find it. I got my copy on uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, the Imago Day, or excuse me, the Imago Christi, the example of Jesus Christ. And then Stuart Olliott's little book, Ministering Like the Master. Uh, each of them have their own benefits and strengths, uh, but all of them I found to be helpful as I came to this topic. And the topic is Christ Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. I want to begin by saying uh, in my first point that Jesus was not an evangelist. Uh, now, I don't mean to be provocative, and yet I do in one sense. Uh, Jesus is not called an evangelist. That word is reserved in the scriptures in Acts 21.8 for Philip who was Philip the Evangelist. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, when uh, pastors and teachers are given to the church, it says that apostles and prophets and some evangelists. And then we see the word in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, to Paul's words to Timothy, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist. And so really, uh, the word's not directly used of Jesus I would say he's doing the work of an evangelist, and I'll come to reason why I want to make that point. Even this morning, I thought about taking this whole point out. But if you look at the scriptures with me, at Luke chapter 4, for instance, a number of places in the Gospels, we have a summary statement about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's reading the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, from Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to evangelize the poor. In Luke chapter 4, down a few more verses in verse 43, Jesus then states his own determination. I must, day, particle of necessity, I must preach, that is, I must evangelize the kingdom of God. That is, I must bring this message of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 4, verse 23, we have this summary statement about Jesus' ministry. Mark 4, 20, or excuse me, Matthew 4, 23. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, 
preaching, that is keruson, that is proclamation, proclaiming, heralding the gospel, euangelion, the gospel of the kingdom. Same thing is found in Matthew 9 and verse 35 and in Luke 8 and verse 1, bringing the glad tidings, that is evangelizing the kingdom of God. So he did the work of an evangelist. This clearly he's involved in, in the gospel. Now, when I first came to this topic, my first thing I always do when I come to something is I do all my word studies, right? And so the first thing, they gave me the topic, Jesus the evangelist. And I said, okay, where's that, where's that found? And began to do some, some searching. And it actually ended up expanding my awareness of what this means and who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he did. But the key text I'd like for us to, to finish this main point, this first point of Jesus' purpose was to evangelize, is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and following. So if you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read in Mark 1, verse 14, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God or preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, if you have the new King James Version, there's a variant reading there, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So here we not only have a summary statement, that all of Jesus' public ministry, all of his ministry in a sense, could be called evangelizing. That's the way it's summarized in these various texts. This is what he was about. This is what he was doing. He was preaching the, kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here, after being introduced by this statement about the, the John the Baptist, we read about Jesus heralding this good news. And then we have this summary statement about what was that message that he proclaimed? How could you summarize that message? And Mark summarized it this way from Jesus' words, the time is fulfilled that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. And as we know, the gospel came uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ coming into this world in the fullness of time, being born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. This is the, the time that he's speaking of, his coming into the world, his bringing a light in the midst of darkness. As Isaiah 9 speaks of him coming uh, to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and them seeing a great light. But that great light that has come is, is a light which is associated with the kingdom of God. The gospel is a message about the kingdom of God. It's a message about the fact that God sovereignly rules over all things. It's a message about the fact that God brings complete salvation. Mark 10, verses 25 and 26. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who can get to heaven? No. Who can be saved? So salvation is described as entering into that kingdom. That salvation that comes to sinners. The church where Christ is the head is specifically called his special kingdom, his place where he rules, Mark 16, 18 through 19. He will give you the keys of the kingdom in that church. So this, this message is a message about the kingdom of God. 
Hendrickson says this, Jesus spoke of the work of salvation as the kingdom or reign of heaven in order to indicate the supernatural character, origin, and purpose of salvation. Our salvation begins in heaven and should redound to the glory of the Father in heaven. Hence, by using this term, Christ defended the truth so precious to all believers that everything is subservient to God's glory. The gospel, brethren, is a gospel about the kingdom, which means it's a gospel which comes to us authoritatively. It comes to mankind with authority behind it from the king. It is, the gospel is a message about the kingdom. It addresses men and their allegiances. With whom are you allied? Behind whom do you, do you serve and where whom are you following? The gospel is, is a kingdom which, which requires a response. He says here later, it's at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so this is something which is calls to men that they must repent, they must believe, they must take this. They're not a, they're not, it's not a privilege in the sense to just say, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. They must repent and believe. It comes with that kind of pressure upon the hearers. And the gospel speaks of a power of deliverance and the ability to reconcile. The gospel offers men the prospect of peace, of deliverance, of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of dwelling in the presence of God, of living under the rule of Jesus Christ. In our world, isn't that good news? When we see the turmoil that's all around us with men hating men, men killing men, humans putting to death their babies, isn't it good news to know there's a place where you can find peace and rest and truly find uh, the solution to the biggest problems that mankind faces? The kingdom of God, is the, it's the gospel of the kingdom of God and it has drawn near. Has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who came into this world and preached that men should repent and believe. Now, why do I even have this point? There's a sense in which I, I'm standing here and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I know you men preach the gospel. I know you know the gospel. Some of you have articulated it from this pulpit in ways that I only wish and dream that I could preach that way. But I, I highlight this because of the fact that I want us to all understand that evangelism is not just for the specialist. It's not just for the natively gifted ones who can just seem to be that apologist like Stephen who can argue uh, against those who are against the gospel. No, this is something, and that's why I, I take it out of the realm of the evangelist, whether you believe that's an office that exists today or not. I'm trying to take it out of that specialized office and saying it's something we all can do something all of our people can do for that matter. But it's meant for every one of us. And so Jesus is not an evangelist, but he is a perfect example for all of us who are called to do the work of an evangelist. Second point is Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. So we're going to look at this in action. And, and, and again, when I started this, you know, your mind immediately goes, I, I would be surprised if I, raised my, if I asked you to raise your hands that majority of you would have said, okay, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, there we go, there's Jesus being the evangelist, right? Those, and, and, and he is the evangelist there, but 
as, as I began to study this, and again with these summary statements and his whole ministry in a sense being summarized as preaching the gospel, suddenly my embarrassment was riches with so many opera things to, to look at uh, in, the, in the scriptures. And when my congregation hears me say that I have the embarrassment of riches, they all start going, oh, this is going to be another long one. And it really could be, because I could really, literally, as I did, I just read through the Gospels. You could read all the way through Matthew and just chapter after chapter after chapter highlight different things where the Gospel comes to the mouth, to the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do in this embarrassment of riches is, I first of all, I want to highlight three contexts in which this proclamation of the Gospel is made. Three contexts in which Jesus did this. The first is open-air preaching. Right? Open-air preaching. Matthew chapter 11. Turn to Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. He's, he's, he's standing there. He's just uh, spoken uh, in this context. Of God's sovereign judgment, sovereign disposition in sending the gospel to certain places. In verse 21, woe unto you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. We'll come back to that. But just notice in verse 28 to 30, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is a gospel plea, right? And this is open-air preaching. You know, we all love open-air preachers, right? Go out. We've got some men who go out, and they like to go to the open squares, and they proclaim the gospel. They go over to Bhutan uh, to go to one of the parks, and they proclaim the gospel. Open-air preaching. That's what Jesus was doing. John chapter 7. There he is in the temple. Open-air preaching. In John 7, verse 37, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Here's an example, open air preaching. Certainly the gospel is to be proclaimed in the open air. But then also there's the applications in his normal sermons. The passage I, I, I highlighted earlier on, Luke chapter 4. There he is in the synagogue. He reads it and he says to them, this day the scriptures are fulfilled in, in your presence. This day he brings the gospel to them as he, as he reads this passage about him coming as the one who fulfills that prophecy of Isaiah. And then he goes throughout Galilee, Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he was in the synagogues, he brought the gospel. In that wonderful sermon, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is sprinkled throughout there, but doesn't he end with his own application of, of the gospel right at the end? Two gates, two ways, two destinations, two builders, two houses, two foundations, two outcomes. There he is. So here he is. He has a, has a crowd there in front of him, and he says, okay, this is my, my preaching, and I'm going to end my preaching and though that is somewhat of a, an open-air environment, still I think it, it comes across as more of a, a direct sermon. And he says, this is, I'm going to finish with this application. So you're in good company if that's what you do in your sermons. You bring the gospel at the end. The Lord Jesus did. And then, most dominantly throughout the scriptures, it's found in personal, providential conversations. Here's the one that really got me, all right? Four men bring their friend who's a paralytic. And they bring him to Jesus. 
in the midst of this huge crowd of people, some of them Pharisees, some of them just the Jews, and, and they bring him and they can't get him in. So what do they do? We, you know the story, right? They get up on the roof, they pull the tiles back, they drop him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's a gospel declaration. Now, why in the world did he start with that? The man wants to be healed. But Jesus takes this opportunity with this man in front of him, not just to give us a display of the fact that he is truly divine. We know that that's what it teaches, right? Because he goes on to say, which is harder? To say, take up your bed and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. He said, well, which is harder? This, let me just ask you. So we know that it teaches us about his divinity and his authority. But he does it in the context of setting the gospel right in front of them. This man needs his sins forgiven more than he needs his legs restored. And all those around him heard that. And that was the one that got me started. Wait a minute. This is broader than I thought. The man healed by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, why didn't he just say, okay, I've healed you. You've done your business. But then he finds him. He goes after him and he finds him. What does he say? See you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What's that but a gospel application? Don't sin anymore. This is your big problem. Is this reality called sin? The woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. What does he say to her? She said, no one, Lord, when he says, who condemns you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Preaches the gospel to her. Turn away from this sin. Don't do this. Now, there's much more to the gospel. I understand it's not just pointing out the sin, but these are all pieces of ways that the Lord Jesus speaks to people. Remember when he heard that grievous news about, about people who were, who were killed in a tragic accident? They were, first of all, he take those who were, whose, whose blood was, was mixed with the sacrifices. What does Jesus do when he gets this news report? How many times have we done this? We, we get to uh, sit down and listen to Al Mohler with somebody, and then we, want to, then we preach the gospel right after we hear him. Well, that's what Jesus did. He hears this news about this horrible event that's happened, and he preaches the gospel to those who brought it to him. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or these 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell and was killed. Do you think that they were worse sinners than other men? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If I could modernize this, by this and, I, and, I, and I hesitate to do this because I do thoroughly condemn terrorist, murderous attacks upon by one nation upon another. And Hamas is a wicked organization that has chosen violence to promote its Islamic purposes. And I condemn that. And I support Israel's right as a nation to defend itself. But let me just modernize this if I can. Do you suppose that these Palestinians are worse sinners than the Israelis? We have two nations, brethren, who neither of them know God. And they're at war with one another. They both need the gospel. And in that kind of a setting, Jesus says, they need to repent and believe. 
when he's at dinner at Matthew's house, he preaches the gospel. When he's with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herodians, he's frequently preaching the gospel. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 45, if you want to look there and follow along as I just kind of outline this. And again, I'm doing this quickly because I have a lot of material. I'm just surveying these contexts of, of this proclamation that, that took place, these personal conversations, uh, some of them broader, some of them smaller, but the context with the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 12, a house divided itself against itself cannot stand, verses 22 to 30. But forgiveness of all sins except one, there it is, he's got the gospel. He says, I'm going to just wait a minute, I'm going to put this in here. And, you know, and how many of us wrestle with the, you know, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? And we missed the statement that just came. All sins are forgiven men, except one. As we focus on the one, let's proclaim the many that are forgiven. The tree is known by its fruits, the, the results. And then he says something about the judgment day. In verses 38 to 42, Jonah, Nineveh, the queen of Sheba. And then he talks about the danger of rejecting the word of God. What's that but preaching the gospel? You're going to take my words and you're going to throw them away? That's, that's dangerous. Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11. When he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles the man. Another personal and more personal interaction is with the rich young ruler. Luke, Matthew chapter 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. Comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he challenges him, well, what do you mean by good? Who's good? Who's really good? Only God is good. And then he presses him with the scriptures. He presses him with the law. And when he gets out from underneath that, because he evidently believed he had kept it, he says, I'm going to push you on one particular point where you need to repent. And he presses very specifically on a sin he knows that man needs to hear. And the disciples respond, who can be saved? They recognize this was a gospel opportunity. Zacchaeus in the tree, today salvation has come to your house. So, so there's, there's all these passages. There's so many uh, examples of, of these kinds of things. But here's the main point that I I'm making at this point. There are three different contexts in which I see him doing the work of an evangelist. It's in the public preaching of the word in the synagogues. It's in the public open-air preaching of the gospel, and it's in personal interactions with people. Private, often small group, often groups to press the gospel home. But now let's look at a few of them a little more closely and see what we can learn from Jesus. So some suggestive Examples, And I'm going to just press these just a little bit further. I just wanted to show you the three contexts. Now let's look at how he does it in different places. And some of you have probably preached on some of these passages. You could add much more to them. I'm not preaching on each one of them. I'm just giving a brief survey of several of them. John chapter 3. Right? John chapter 3. Got to go there because that's where everybody's mind goes. Great message preached a number of years ago by Pastor Cook on this message here at Trinity. You can probably find it on Sermon Audio. Some of you probably have others who've preached on it as well. The Samaritan woman. Or excuse me, this is Nicodemus. Excuse me, Nicodemus. 
comes to him by night, right? So it wasn't like Jesus prepared this. He didn't go to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him. And as Nicodemus comes to him, he asks him some questions. Good teacher, excuse me, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man in the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God and as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you, have, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What? That is not what I asked. Jesus says, no, no, I want to talk to you about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because this is what you, religious man that you are, need to hear. This is what you need to understand. He questions, as it were, his ability to truly grasp theological truths. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot of theology going on here between the two of these men. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says, I'm, I'm talking about things that are spiritually, spiritual and are God's working. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things? There's an evangelistic attempt, uh, effort, right? What are you, dumb? Would you miss this? You know, how many times has, has Jesus said to them, do you not know the scriptures? Have you not read? And he's challenging those who think they understand the scriptures. This might be something we do with some of those false teachers when they present themselves. Wait a minute, have you not read the scriptures? You're, you're out of line with the truth. It seeks to press him. So there's this whole theological approach. Apologists would love it. Right? Wow, we've got a good apologetic conversation going on here. We're going to debate truth. But Jesus is purposeful. He gets to the point of challenging Nicodemus's Jewish pharisaical ideas. And he poses with him a challenging thought. He explains his thought. He highlights Nicodemus' ignorance. And then notice verse 13. What does he do? He introduces himself to, G to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Oh, wait a minute. Now he's getting, he's getting to the point where he really is going with this conversation. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. He says, I'm going to take something from your Old Testament book that you should know about, and I'm going to show how that talks about me. So that whoever believes will, it, will in him have eternal life. So Nicodemus needed to understand that he was lost and he needed to be saved by believing on the Son of Man. And so he takes this whole providential circumstance and he turns it around into a gospel conversation with that marvelous verse in verse 16, for God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to press him with the, thing, the, the truths of the gospel about damnation, about darkness, about light, about sin, about righteousness. And what men are like. And do you think Nicodemus gets the picture? It's, I'm not just talking about the Gentiles. Nicodemus, we're talking. And he who does not come to the light loves darkness. Nicodemus, are you hearing me? 
And so he's taking this opportunity. Now, Nicodemus may have been on the edge. He may have already been moving toward Christ. He may have come here in faith, some measure of faith. But Jesus presses him with the gospel, a theological approach. Chapter 4, Jesus now with the woman at the well. Amazing chapter because, you know, in verse 7 through 9, you, know, you, you realize that he's, he has absolutely no prejudice. This, this Jewish rabbi, notable rabbi as he was at that time going throughout Israel, he, he now has opportunity to speak to a, to a Samaritan woman and he has absolutely no prejudice. And he speaks very naturally with her on a very common level. She's even amazed that he would talk to her. And he says to her, you know, give me a drink. Just start with a very common conversation. Well, would you like my seat on the bus? Nobody gives me their seat on the bus. Well, I do because I'm, God loves me and I'm just showing love to others around me. Jesus says, give me a drink. Gets her thinking. And he says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A felt gospel, <laughs> felt needs gospel. She needs water and he's going to use that as a springboard to get to things more important. And he gets to things more important because she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be, not be thirsty and come all the way here to draw. And now he points out her sin. He's already started a nice, warm conversation with her, friendly conversation with her. Now he comes to her sin. He doesn't start with, you are a harlot, a wicked woman who needs to repent of her sins. But now he even, and he doesn't even directly address it. He lets her bring it out. Go, call your husband and come here. Now, this is where we're not like Jesus, right? We can't, we don't know things about people. Maybe we do know something about the people we're talking to. And that's something we can use to say, well, wait a minute. Let me highlight this. Your need. Your need for the gospel. Go call your husband. She makes it known what her sinful past, what her situation is, and he highlights it more fully for her. Yes, that's right. You are not living with your husband. He highlights her sinful lifestyle prophetically in verses 16 through 19. And then they have a discussion about worship. And I don't know whether that's a legitimate question or not. You know, there's debate. You can debate whether she trying, was she trying to blow some smoke and change it. Or was she really concerned? Does she really have a serious question? Well, Jesus does answer her question. Unlike he did with Nicodemus, he does actually answer her question. And he says, you know, well, let's, let's talk about, about worship and where worship should take place and who worshipers are. But then notice verse 29. Here's the point. She gets the point. He said, well, he, certainly he gets, he gets to the point in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. There is a plain declaration. Right out there, right out in front. She gets the message because she goes and tells everybody about it. And others come and hear the gospel. John chapter 9, John chapter 10, a couple other passages, a couple of, another passage we could look at, the, the man born blind that Jesus heals, and, and yet he doesn't just leave him, he, he makes it known to him who he is, and then he goes and seeks him out. The, 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 the synagogue throws him out, the, they get rid of him, and Jesus says, no, no, he's like, the, like Jehovah, was it Ezekiel 
chapter 34, or anyway, where, where the, the bad shepherds have trampled everybody and Jehovah says, I'm going to go search my people out. Well, here's Jehovah going to search out one of his people. And he goes, says, I'm not going to leave him scattered out there. I'm going to show my love and compassion for him, this one that I've healed. Matthew chapter 11. And here you can, you can pick up Stuart Olliott's book and get more detail. Uh, but let me again just kind of outline this passage in Matthew chapter 11. I had the privilege of reading this at a, at a, at a, at a funeral of a uh, hyper-Calvinistic, in a hyper-Calvinistic church. And uh, the man preached half a gospel. Didn't preach any gospel at all, really. And I got to read this passage. And uh, I read how sovereignly God's involved in where the gospel goes, right? Woe unto you. Chapter, chapter, seven, chapter 10, verses 20 to 24. That's the, uh, let's see. Yeah, get my, find my place here. Chapter 10, beginning at, where am I looking here? Excuse me. Matthew, I'm in John. That's why it's looking so odd. Sorry about that. I'm just a little bit nervous up here. All right, Matthew chapter 11. There we go, 20. And he began to denounce the cities in which most of the miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. Excuse me, Tyre and Sidon. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He is the sovereign God, and he knows if these things had been done there, they would have repented. But they weren't done there. They were done here, and you're condemned because you rejected them. And so he speaks of God's sovereignty in the spread of the gospel and God's sovereignty in judgment. Ollie, it says, that this, calls this pointing the finger. And Jesus points the finger at specific groups. He points at each of these cities and condemns them. And he's in the midst of those cities, not far from them, when he does this. And then he points his finger at specific sins, the rejection of Christ, the dismissing of the miracles, literally unbelief. And then he points his finger toward the day of judgment and says, there's a judgment day coming. This is gospel. And then he has this public prayer where he praises the Father in verses 25 to 27, in which he highlights again the sovereignty of God, that God has hidden certain things and revealed it to others. All the hyper-Calvinists were all loving me at this point, right? They're all going, yeah, amen, right? Mm, yeah, if they, would, if they did that, they don't make those kinds of noises. <laughs> but but, but, he, but he, he comes to this point where this prayer that, you know, I, I praise you that you, have, that you are sovereign and only those to whom you reveal it will come to know you. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and the one to, who knows the Father except the Son, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal it. And I said, this woman that has just died, she heard this message, and there was a fantastic, again, gospel message preached by Bill Hughes from this pulpit on this particular passage. And she listened to that message on record. And she repented and believed just days before she died. And her sister, who's a member here in the church, who was the one who took that tape to her, is the one that allowed me to be able to come in and read this scripture. 
And so then I said, in this context of God's sovereignty and judgment and sovereignty in dispensing salvation, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And she came, and you can too. And if looks could kill, I wouldn't be here to preach. But that's what Jesus did, right? He says, I don't have to hide the sovereignty of God. I'm going to proclaim this reality, and yet in the midst of that, I'm going to pr proclaim a free offer for any and all to come. Matthew 23, we heard about this from Pastor Cook. William Blakey, in his book, uh, highlights this. And certainly it is a, a great example of the you know, love with being without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil. Woe unto you, scribes, hypocrites, Pharisees. What was he doing? Was he just condemning them? Is he just showing us these wicked, what wickedness sin is? Well, sure, he's so showing us that in this passage. It's an amazing passage about how religious people can be absolutely blind in unbelief. Dead in their trespasses and sins, why they think they're so great. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus highlights this in order to show that he has compassion for them, that they might repent. William Blakey said this, We must remember Jesus' remarkable insight into the human heart, a circumstance which makes his, his example applicable to us in but a limited degree, that is, his ability to read men's hearts. Still, the impression remains in our minds that there must be cases in which even for us, the proper mode of dealing with sin is that of a stern and crushing rebuke. Now, we must use the gentleness that we heard about. But Jesus isn't being gentle at this point. The people in front of him need something else. And Blakey goes on to say, one purpose of this tone of sharp rebuke in the case of, an, of the unimpressed hearers as in the case of godless formalists, was doubtless to startle them and give them a last chance, as it were, of escaping the consequences of their guilt. In his severest reprimands, we may note an undertone of compassion, the feeling that burst forth so as to overpower him when he foretold the doom of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that stoned the prophets and killed them that were sent to her. Blakey goes on, the only way to do them real good was to shell them, as it were, out of the position. And if I were Gordon Cook, I'd be painting this beautiful picture of these people in their pillbox and these big shells coming in. And they're not sitting there with this little pistol. Man, he's throwing the big shells. Woe unto you. Blakey says, you gotta, sometimes you have to shell them out of their position. To hurl woe upon woe against them, if perchance they might be terrified into belief in a righteous judge and seeing their condition, begin to ask, what must me do to be saved? Surely we may gather from this that no ministry can be faithful, which does not solemnly reprove and warn all who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not be afraid to tell them what Christ declared, that the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment against what, against, and con, against them and condemn them. Our warnings delivered in the right spirit, there's the key, our warnings delivered in the right spirit may be the means of startling them into repentance. Anyhow, even if they don't, we shall dispel the delusion that the death of Christ justifies indifference to the real nature of sin. 
Our Lord left no doubt about the danger of sin when he spoke to these Pharisees. And then there are other times when he just comes with straightforward comfort. What did he say to that paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. What did he say to the woman caught in sin? Your sins, excuse me, the, the sinful woman who came to him and kissed his feet and, and poured tears on his, on his feet. What did he say to her? Your sins have been forgiven. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Are you truly repentant? Let me see something of that repent. No, he just says, this day you shall be with me in paradise. What comfort? What salve? What kindness? I think we can all grow, I know I can grow, in just giving sinners hope that there is forgiveness for their sins. We have a lot of broken people around us that are hopeless. The gospel is meant to give them hope. Blakey put it this way, Our Lord, It has been strongly felt that the first step toward restoration must be to inspire them with faith in the reality and the possibility of being restored. And we're not saying being restored in all of their, their pain and, and difficulties in this life. We're talking about ultimate restoration in being made right with God and having the hope of heaven. So there's the survey. And I just touched upon, I, and I, I have a whole list of things from the, the Gospel of Matthew. And you could do, again, the same thing with the Gospel of Luke. But here's my final applications in the time that remains to me. Develop the mindset, brethren, that sees people as God sees them. Needy and valuable. Oh, wait a minute. That word valuable. We can't use that word. You know, it's LGBTQ. They've taken all that. No, no, it's, it's, it's a biblical truth. We need to come to people with compassion. Men are in bondage. Men are blind. Men are beguiled. And we need to see them in the midst of that pain and suffering and condition and come to them with compassion. We need to have that compassion to see them, to desire to see them delivered. We need to come with conviction. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And how often do we really end our, our counseling sessions, even with the people of God? Do we, do we end it or do we in, infuse it with the gospel? They need the gospel. To work in their lives, that there's a Savior who will forgive husbands who don't love their wives. To give, forgive wives who won't submit to their husbands. To forgive people who've committed the a grievous sin of killing a baby in their womb. They need to have hope that they can be forgiven and received by God. For people who've lived a wicked life with scars all over them. We need to weep over them. And come with the conviction that the power of God is the gospel it can save. And that there is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved. We need to come with a sense of the value of the human soul. Isn't that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul and forfeits his soul? Pastor Sarver preached a message here many years ago and he, and he highlighted that fact. He says, people aren't even getting the whole world. They're just getting a little bitty piece, and they're willing to forfeit their souls. How sad. Jesus was not satisfied 
with correcting Nicodemus's religious mistakes. Jesus was not satisfied with correcting this woman's immoral lifestyle. She didn't want just, he didn't just want to make her have a better marriage with the man that she was living with. He wasn't content with just resolving the paralytic's need to get a job to heal him so he could work, the blind man, so that he wouldn't have to beg anymore. He wasn't, he wasn't satisfied with just getting Zacchaeus to get a more socially acceptable position and stop robbing his fellow men. He wanted them to see that their problem was the sin that entainted all of this, and they'd be delivered from that. If we can't, if we can just get... We must not be satisfied with just getting people to have well-ordered lives, well-ordered marriages, well-ordered families. We must not be satisfied with just getting young men to actually get a job and a career and do something and not just sit and play their life away. We must never be satisfied with that. Jesus was not satisfied with that. We have to remember that the problems that they face really have eternal consequences, not just life consequences. So we need to see people as Jesus, as God saw people, as Jesus saw people. We need to study people as Jesus knew people. We must study people carefully. We must know the gospel thoroughly. The person we're talking to, are they stubbornly resisting the gospel? Well, I might have to come then with that woe unto you. Are they religious unbelievers? Muslims even. Jews, theological liberals. Can I start with the scriptures and then press them with the scriptures and say, thus saith the scriptures. Do you not know what the scriptures teach? Or are they worldlings who have no knowledge of the gospel? And coming to them with a Bible verse is like coming to them with a comic book. And helping them to understand there's something more here that I have to give to you, a word from God himself. Are they sincerely seeking but confused? You need to study people, know the people we're talking to, so we know how to bring the gospel to them. And so how to address them and bring them to face-to-face -to -face with Jesus Christ. What false gospels, what false doctrines have they imbibed that they need to shed? Are they hypocrites? Formalists? You know, we should all have in our minds that there's probably... Very likely, people like that in our congregations we need to be shaken from their pillbox of hypocrisy and formalism. Do you ever have in your heart what I know resides in mine sometimes? I don't want to share the gospel with this person. They have so much baggage. Do you know what kind of work that's going to make for us as elders if they come into the membership? You know, there's a church over there. No, this is, you know, we're, we're here at this church because we believe this church has the gospel. And we believe it is a, a, a valuable, right place to be. And that's why we're here. So we want people to be here, even with baggage. But we need to see people as those who are oppressed by the devil, ensnared by worldly lies, who need to be rescued. And we need to know the gospel thoroughly. By that I mean backwards and forwards. So that we can begin anywhere... In the gospel, wherever this person is, and bring them face to face with Jesus Christ. We need to have our speech sprinkled, as it were, with grace. 
seasoned with salt in all of these kinds of conversations. We need to know, should I woo this person or should I woe this person? Should you begin with the convicting power of the law like Jesus did with the rich young ruler? Or should you come with the sweet comfort of the promise of forgiveness in Jesus Christ? The glories of his person to draw their minds to one greater than all their problems. Jesus could start anywhere. And I know he wasn't talking to unbelievers, but they're on the road to Emmaus. What did he do? He started with Moses and the prophets and brought them through the scriptures, explained to them the things concerning him in all the scriptures. So, brethren, we need to fill our hearts with the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ so that it will just naturally flow on our lips. And I would just say, under this studying of people and knowing the gospel thoroughly, it will keep us from falling into the, the, the danger of making any one interaction that Jesus had the paradigm for all evangelism. That doesn't work. And if you listen to some of these men that have their sermons posted online, and I'm not talking about sermons at Sermon Audio, I'm talking about men who go on YouTube because they're preaching out on the street. And it's always the same vehement, or very often the same vehement attack on the people in front of them. But I heard Jeremy Walker preaching about friendship in the open air. That he might say, there's a friend of sinners. And it was lovely the way he was addressing those around him, rather than inveighing against them. Beware, brethren, of falling into the predictable patterns of proclamation in our sermons. It's a dangerous thing, isn't it? We need to study the, the Gospels with our, these eyeglasses on. So how did Jesus talk to this person? How did Jesus talk to this person? How did he bring the Gospel in this context? How did he bring the Gospel in this context? So that we won't fall into that predictable pattern of putting it right at the end, and it's always the same. We haven't heard the same gospel message preached yet at this conference. It's always had a different, different flavor. And this is one of those places where I think it's appropriate to listen to other men, listen to their sermons. How do they get the gospel in? I remember, pre I remember preaching in the Philippines and preaching on a, a message from, about heaven. And it was all to the people of God. It was just comfort to the people of God. That's what I came for. So I started with my opening message was, this message is not for you if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I preached the gospel up front, and at the end. Throw it in at different places. Emulate the Lord Jesus Christ in his varied approaches to people. Imitate those other men as they imitate Christ. And to apply Pastor Cook's message, beware of hypocrisy. Blakey said, men that have heaven and hell forever on their lips are not always men whose hearts tremble at the awfulness of the difference. Preachers who realize profoundly that every member of their audience is traveling to one place or the other will not be glib and easy in their reference to them. The effect of their profound conviction will come out more in the intense reality and earnestness both of their preaching and their prayers, and in the directness and the fervor of their appeals to their hearers, at once to accept the offers made so graciously to them in the gospel. You really believe heaven and hell are real? 
then those requests will come, those pleas will come, sometimes with tears, sometimes with, with just almost anger, because you, why do you stay? Why? And then remember the truth of God's sovereignty, but don't let your belief in the sovereignty of God hinder you from preaching the gospel and calling men to come to Christ. And don't feel you need to hide the truth of God's sovereignty when preaching the gospel and calling men to come to Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't. And my final point, and since I'm the director of things here, I can go a little bit long. <laughs> my fellow elders can get me later. Validate the proclamation of the gospel with your life. A life of holiness. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, Paul said to Timothy. Sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord in pure hearts. Read Jeremy Blocker's book on the brokenhearted evangelist on Psalm 51 and how he brings that out. A life of love, love for the brethren, John 13, 34, and 35. We, we miss a great opportunity. A great evangelistic tool is the love of the brethren for one another. They will know you are my disciples by your love. And we need to love the lost like God loved the lost. Showing love not just to those who love us, but to those who are our enemies. Luke chapter 6. We must have a life of kindness, a life marked by doing good works. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or 1 Peter 2 and verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of their good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What Blakey calls live a life of grace. Jesus lived a life of grace. His whole life was a sermon of grace. The tenderness of his spirit, the readiness of his sympathy, the cordiality of his manner, the frankness and freeness of his cures, the fervor of his invitations, the heavenliness of his life were all exhibitions of divine love and were thus the means of rekindling hope where its lamp had been extinguished and where nothing remained but the blackness of despair. Why did that woman come and want to touch his garment? Why did that woman come in and stand at his feet and weep? Wipe his, her, his feet, kiss his feet, anoint his feet. There was one who would, who would receive her. And he walked, she just walks right up to him. Is that the way your life is? Is that the way our lives are? May it never be. Though could it possibly be that we are not seeing sinners being converted to God because our lives do not validate our lips? Life without lips is a mystery, Pastor Martin would say. Lips without life is hypocrisy. So I close. Evangelistic events are good, but I would argue Evangelistic hearts overflowing in gospel mouths and displayed in grace-filled lives is more Christ-like and are thus better. There's no tent meetings in Jesus' life. There's just the life of grace. 
May God help us to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the richness of it. Please guide and direct us to follow it, be obedient unto it, for the glory of King Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.